Morning, Bethel. All right. Our scripture reading for this morning is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7. It's 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 959. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7. This is the word of the Lord. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, everyone. Good to be with you here this morning and worship our great God who loves us so much. Um, celebrate that love in those songs. Um, it's really encouraging. Um, one thing I want to mention before we dive into our um, study in the Word this morning is talked about follow-up um, for the missions conference. And one of the ways we're going to get that ball rolling is this Wednesday night in the place of prayer meeting. Um, we're going to just provide some context for brainstorming and um, just follow through, ways that we can follow through with the things that we heard um, two weekends ago at the missions conference. So just join us in this room right here, 6.30, Wednesday night. We'll send out an email tomorrow to that effect, but just to give you a heads up um, that that's what that, that's going to be all about. Hope you can join us, and if you couldn't make it to the missions conference, that's okay. You could still join us and, and um, as we seek to reach our city for the glory of Jesus. All right, so um, we're going to be looking at the latter half of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, um, you can find our passage for this morning on page 970. So as you're turning there, I want you to just think about uh, a couple of dynamics in our worlds, in our worlds, in our world. Um, Dynamics, plural, world singular. There we go. Um, I'm awake. Are you awake? Okay. So self-serving lives, people that are focused on themselves, self-serving leadership, so self-serving dynamics in the lives of people who have power. Um, it's kind of the bane of our existence, isn't it? If you think about the news and all the mess and trouble that we tend to hear, you could probably trace most of it to self-centered lives and self-serving, self-centered leadership or abuses of power, okay? So how much of the trouble and pain, not just out there but also in our lives, how much of the suffering, the loss, the disappointment, the anxiety, the fear, the trouble, the destitution, the devastation, 
is following in the wake of selfish people and selfish uses of power, okay? So that's a very real contemporary issue for all of us, and it was a very real issue when Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians. So the dangers of self-serving leadership are at the heart of things in 2 Corinthians. Paul is seeking the welfare of the church in Corinth, their best interest, and he's doing it all along, actually at great cost to himself. He loves these people. He's their spiritual father, so he led them to Christ. They're his children in the faith, okay? And yet, here he is having to defend himself and try to win them back because there's people that have come in, self-centered leaders, who have led them astray from him. So, Again, I think we all kind of intuitively know that there is, in a sense, two ways to live, selfishly or lovingly. We can live to use people or to bless people, to serve people or to be served. So to follow Jesus is to receive his love and live a life of love. So 1 Corinthians, we studied some months back, and we called that series Cruciform Life. because we die to ourselves being at the center of the universe. Jesus is at the center. We follow him, but that actually frees and empowers us to live a life of love. And then 2 Corinthians, we've called cruciform ministry because as we follow Jesus, he calls us to love people like he loved, and he empowers us again to do that. And Paul is an example of that. So we're called to follow Jesus and to love like Jesus. So <clears throat> Paul is an example of what this looks like, this cruciform life, this cruciform ministry to others. Um, he has learned how to love. His whole life was a life of love. And as Paul relates to the Corinthians, especially those who've been most foolish and have resisted his leadership, we get a beautiful lesson of love here in the latter half of 2 Corinthians 12. So, again, this is what these books, his correspondence to the Corinthians have, have been all about, aimed at shaping their lives to conform with the cross and shaping their ministry, their relationship to other people, loving, na- other people, loving neighbors as Christ had loved them. So Paul's an example of this, and he's basically calling them to follow him. You've got to leave behind these jokers that are self-serving and selfish. Don't follow them. Follow me. Imitate me as I follow Christ. Okay, so what we're going to do here this morning is a little bit different than usual. We're going to walk through the whole text, kind of um, stopping in a few spots fairly quickly, to make sure we understand what's going on, especially if you haven't been here through the series. And then we're going to draw out six lessons on love that Paul's example provides for us, okay? So let's first kind of read through 2 Corinthians 12, verses 11 to 21. And as we read, just kind of be on the lookout for these examples, these ways in which Christ-like love shines from the page from Paul's example. Um, and then let's let it be a lesson for us, okay? So 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 11. Like I said, it's on page 970. If you, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Um, 
can follow along as I read here, and we'll stop in a few places to make sure we have our bearings and understand what's going on. So verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. So Paul has had to stoop to the level of these false apostles who've come in to undermine his leadership. They look really impressive on the outside. They're boasting of their resumes. They're boasting of their visions and revelations from from God. They're trying to gain a following. And Paul, he doesn't want to boast in anything except the cross of Christ. Okay? He doesn't have anything to boast about. He doesn't want the attention to be on him. He wants the attention to be on Jesus. But the Corinthians have kind of had stars in their eyes with these guys. And so Paul says, you know what? Okay, I'll boast. <laughs> I'll play on their field. But I'll do it in order to show how foolish this boasting really is. And so he says, I've been a fool. To boast like this is to be foolish. So in other words, he's saying that he's been a fool, but he's really saying, hey, get it? Connect the dots. They're the fools. Don't be foolish to be led astray by them. Don't follow them. You'd be following fools. So any boasting except in the Lord is foolish, and Paul didn't want the Corinthians to assess it any other way. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. So these super apostles... um, their attempts at undermining Paul's authority in the lives of the Corinthians should not have been effective. Okay, when these guys started criticizing Paul, the Corinthians should have said, hey, wait a second, we, this is our father in the faith. We love him. We know him. He loves us. What are you guys talking about? So as it happened, they weren't just silent in the face of that criticism. They actually started to agree. So Paul shouldn't have had to defend himself but he was forced to, okay, because of how they responded. So on its own, the boasting of, of those false apostles would never have elicited this response from Paul. He wouldn't have boasted like this and had to defend himself. He's only doing it out of concern for the Corinthian church. So again, this kind of gets us caught up to speed if you're not familiar with this territory. Okay, so you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, even though, um, I'm sorry, I think I made a little mistake here in my notes. Um, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. So again, he's got this tension. He has to step up to the challenge of these so-called apostles, but he, he doesn't like it. <laughs> it makes him come across as boastful, so he says, even though I'm nothing. So I'm not inferior, but... I I know I'm nothing. Jesus is everything. So verse 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. He lacks no qualification of a true apostle. They should know this. They were there. Okay? He performed signs and wonders and mighty works. It attested to his apostolic authority. Verse 13, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. So you remember one of the criticisms was he doesn't 
you know, he doesn't require any payment for his speaking, for his ministry. Gee, you get what you pay for. Must be pretty weak, pathetic apostle that he can't even, you know, charge a fee for his services. Paul was doing this out of love, and they're trying to undermine his ministry. So here he says, in what way were you less favored than other churches, except that I didn't burden you with any financial needs? I'm so sorry for sinning against you like that. So this is, again, some more holy sarcasm. It's not a tongue lashing. It's a loving desire. It's sarcasm in the interest of a loving desire to kind of wake them up from their stupor, their blindness. So verse 14, this letter is in preparation for a third visit. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So again, this is getting at some of this context. If you remember back in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he had directed them to store up some money each week for a collection that he was taking to meet the needs of really poor Christians in Jerusalem. There was a famine, really poor. So as he was going along, he was collecting money from these Gentile churches in order to bless the Jerusalem saints. So you can imagine what these false apostles, how they ran with that. Sure, save it up for, you know, poor people far away, Paul. Yeah, I get it. Are you sure that he's not having you store it up for him? Like, as soon as he's out of sight, he can do with that money whatever he wants. And you know what? He could do it without the social debt that comes along with receiving money from someone. So if they actually gave him money on the spot for his ministry, you know how if someone has you over, you have this like sense of social debt? He could be so tricky. He'll say it's for the Jerusalem saints, and maybe he even gives some of the money to them. But he says, oh, no, I'll, I'll take nothing from, you, nothing from you. And then he gets the collection, skims off the top, gives some to the Jerusalem saints, he benefits, and he incurs no social debt. You see how they could have played that out? So, he, again, he's got to say, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not the point. Children are obligated to save up for their parents, or are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. In other words, I'm your spiritual father. I want to bless you. I'm not looking for you to bless me, to serve me, to... Give to me, verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Again, more sarcasm. Did I take advantage of you? Through any of those whom I sent to you, I urged Titus to go, to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So if you look back in chapter 7, you see that they knew Titus and they responded really well to him. They trusted him. So did they really believe that Titus would participate in an embezzlement scheme? So again, they're listening to these false apostles and Paul has to defend himself. So he's trying to help them see that that's crazy. They don't have any reason to really believe this false narrative. Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? 
It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. A lot of these things we saw in 1 Corinthians, right? A lot of quarreling, a lot of factions, a lot of selfish ambition and rivalry, a lot of disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Remember, Paul had to address that sexual immorality in, in the first letter, um, chapter 5, chapter 6. We see that, and so he's concerned that maybe they haven't responded, haven't learned their lesson. So again, he's trying to warn them ahead of time, encourage them to repent, because he has their best interest in mind. So that's kind of an orientation. Now let's just kind of look at some of, draw out some of the lessons of love that we see in um, these verses. So first, love bears. Look at verses 13 and 14. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. So Paul made this conscious decision not to require financial support from the Corinthians. He did it from the get-go. He defends and explains it back in 1 Corinthians 9. We saw that. Or you could flip back a page to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7. You see it back there, um, 2 Corinthians eleven seven. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge, I robbed other churches, quote-unquote, by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So Paul's pattern actually was to plant a church, move on to the next city, and then if the church was willing and ready, the church he left behind that was already established, they would help support him. So he was never kind of open to the accusation of doing the work to really just get the money. Do you see? So that was his typical pattern. And he had been in Macedonia, and Macedonia sent on help ahead to meet his needs. So the point being, Paul wasn't going to ask for money. That's not what he wanted. It's not what he was after. He wanted their hearts. He wanted what was best for them. So listen to this lesson of love. I'd rather bear burdens and suffering so that you would flourish spiritually than burden you and have it get in the way of you flourishing spiritually. So loving spiritual leadership is aimed at it's committed to the welfare, the well-being of the other. It's not aimed at and committed to your own gain and self-interest. So Paul would much rather bear the burden for his support than burden them for it. He'd rather make it harder on himself if it meant it was easier on them in the sense of receiving his ministry. So to bear burdens that we don't have to bear but do so for love, 
solely in the interest of others, that is totally countercultural, isn't it? Bearing burdens that you don't have to bear for the sake of love in the interest, the best interest of the other, that is so countercultural. Love bears all things, like Tyler read from 1 Corinthians 13. So let's make these love lessons personal. Aren't we people so often that fear burdens? It's actually why we fear commitment, isn't it? We don't want to get locked in. It's why we keep people at arm's length. It's why we avoid phone calls, either in response or proactively. You can keep people more at arm's length with a text, can't you? It's why we don't ask people how they're really doing, because, frankly, we might not want to know. So sometimes that's just because we're selfish, we don't want to be bothered. Sometimes it's because we're overloaded, isn't it? And we feel like we can't handle another thing. Sometimes it's because we're dealing with our own pain. And when your own, let me just use this kind of as an as a illustration, when your own back is out, as it were, you can't carry someone else's backpack very well. So if our love comes from our own resources, it's going to really quickly run out. If our love is a response to the loveliness of the other or the advantage that we gain by loving that person, there's no grace in that, right? It doesn't take any supernatural resources to love like that. Remember Jesus in, in Luke 6. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But what if our love comes from God? So if we are loving someone that God puts in our path, if you're rebuffed, if you're rejected, if you're misunderstood, you can continue to love. Because it's not coming from your pathetic resources, my pathetic resources that you know, get used up pretty quickly. It's not coming from, hey, how's this going? If it benefits me, I'll continue to love. It's coming from God, and his resources never run out. Parents know what I'm talking about here, okay? I read a really powerful illustration of this, and we're probably not going to face something like this, but the point is if it's possible for this guy there is a ton of grace and resource and love for us to love even our enemies. So it's in the recent VOM magazine entitled Radical Muslim Won by the Love of Christ. After listening to his co-worker sing Christian worship songs for several days as they painted a house in Cairo, Walid had finally had enough. His ultra-conservative Muslim father, who had five wives and 32 children, had taught him early in life that he should hate all Christians. That deep-seated hatred had already led him to beat Haytham with a wooden stick for singing along with the Christian songs playing in his earbuds. And since that hadn't, ha hadn't stopped the singing, Walid decided to silence him permanently. One night after work, Walid grabbed a knife and followed Haytham into the streets. After making sure they were alone, he attacked Haytham from behind, stabbing him in the side, Haytham turned to look at his attacker as he fell to the ground, writhing in pain, and Walid made eye contact with him before fleeing the scene. 
Expecting a visit from the police, Waleed hid anxiously at his aunt's house. Um, quote, I tried calling some of my friends to see if Hatham was alive or dead, he said. They told me someone attacked him and they had to remove one of his kidneys. To his great surprise, Waleed also learned that Hatham hadn't filed a police report against him, yet he knew Hatham had seen his face. Weeks later, Waleed felt secure enough to leave his aunt's house and began looking for a new job. But while walking down the street one day, a taxi struck him, crushing one leg and one arm. Waleed spent the next 15 days in the hospital. As he lay in his hospital bed one morning, he was startled to see Hatham and a few of his Christian friends walk in, carrying fruit and drinks. Waleed screamed, thinking they had come to kill him. Why are you screaming? Hatham asked. I'm just coming to say that I'm sorry for what happened to you. Hatham could sense Walid's fear as they began to talk. Don't worry, he assured him. I will never do something bad to you. You are really dear to my heart. I love you. How come? Walid asked nervously. I attacked you. You still love me? My God told me to love you whatever you do to me, Hatham replied. No, you don't love me, Walid yelled. You're going to do something. You hate me. Realizing that he had upset Walid, Hatham placed the fruit and drinks on the table and left with his friends. After Walid was released from the hospital, a friend from the painting crew checked on him regularly to see how he was doing. He also gave Walid money during the several months that he couldn't work. At first, Walid simply thanked him for his generosity, but as the money kept coming, he grew suspicious. Why do you give me this money? Walid asked. Someone knows your case, the friend said. They gave me this money to give to you. For days, Walid pestered his friend for the name of the donor. Then finally, he insisted on knowing. It's Hatham, his friend told him. So the hatred Walid felt for Hatham eventually turned to admiration as he realized he had never seen anyone like him before. Overwhelmed by guilt, Walid recalled all the times he had hurt Hatham only to receive love in return. It made no sense to continue hating him. Fast forward, still he... You know, they were working again at the same job site, and when Walid would sing, he would just, or I'm sorry, Hatham would sing, he would just go work somewhere else. Well, after working at 1.30, until 1.30 a.m. one morning to finish an urgent job, they decided to meet at a 24-hour cafe. When they were ready to head home for a few hours of sleep before starting the next day's work, Walid realized he had missed the last train home and would have to spend the rest of the night at the cafe. Don't stay here, Hatham said. Please come with me. Walid knew he shouldn't stay at a Christian's house, but he also knew he would sleep better if he stayed with Hatham. Exhausted, he accepted the offer. Hatham insisted that his guest take the bedroom, his bedroom. And eventually, Walid became a Christian, and his family, his brothers, actually beat him repeatedly for it. Um, he's had to hide from his family, but the article closes with this. Walid is grateful, however, that he has many Christians in his life who care for him including a man he once tried to kill. <laughs> love bears all things. So cruciform ministry is a call to Christ-like love, even for enemies. It's not just being nice. Certainly not nice in our own strength. This is why Christianity is a miracle. We need supernatural grace only by the power of the gospel, only by the power of the cross. We need supernatural grace for our love to bear all things and not be self-seeking. So love is not self-seeking. Okay, first it bears burdens. Second point, it seeks the best for the beloved. Point number two, verse 14. 
here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. So love is not self-seeking. What's in it for me is not a Christian question. Love seeks the best for the beloved. It is active, not passive. It seeks. So it doesn't wait around to only reciprocate love that, you know, moves towards you. Someone else takes the first step. It proactively pursues the other for their good. I seek not what is yours but you. So Paul doesn't want their money. He wants their hearts. He wants their allegiance and loyalty to be with him, which means to be with Jesus. He wants their love, not because he's needy, but because he's the one who truly loves them. And he doesn't wait for them to make the first move. He's been proactive and engaged all along in this relationship. So again, a lesson in love. Does that characterize your love, my love? In our marriage, in your marriage. How often, you know, sometimes in pre-marriage counseling we ask, Hey, so in your relationship and your patterns, when you sin against the other person, who's the one that closes up and who's the one that, you know, tries to pursue? Like, you, you both ought to do that, right? But oftentimes we just, you know, do this. Love is active. It's seeking the well-being of the other. It's not passive. It doesn't wait around for the other to, to move. How about in your parenting? How about in your community group? Seeking the well-being of the other with visitors here. Are we proactive proactive in seeking out the well-being of those around us with our neighbors? Of course, we've all failed in all of these ways, but let's learn a lesson here from the Apostle Paul. God wants us to grow in love, to shape us so that we live out cruciform ministry. So love bears burdens. It proactively seeks the welfare of the beloved. It also spends itself. Point number three, verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? So you can see how he ties spending oneself to love. So their allegiance, the Corinthians, shockingly, is with those who are exploiting them. These false apostles are exploiting them. Paul has loved them deeply at great personal cost, and Paul is being loved less. So the super apostles have used them. They've exploited the Corinthians, and they're more aligned with them. At least some in the congregation are more aligned with them. So do you see how the cross is utterly necessary to cruciform love? Where do you get the resources to love like this, to spend most gladly, spend and be spent? Not what's in it for me, not I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, not this much and no farther, but most gladly I will spend my resources for you and spend myself, pour myself out for your souls. So Paul is willing to spend his resources, not take them from them, as well as spend himself for their benefit. (laughs) This is like, this is impossible, right? except for the grace of God, except for the self-giving of God, except for the cross. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 8, 9? 
you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. So he emptied himself. He poured himself out. He spent himself so that we would have these resources of love and mercy and grace. So if we're going to love like this, we can't lose sight of God's love for us. We can't assume it. We've got to drink it in daily. It's the only way we'll be filled up and enabled to spend ourselves on others, right? So another illustration. I just got this book recently. Anything that Rosaria Butterfield writes is worth reading, probably. I guess I haven't read everything she's written, so maybe I can't say that um, with total integrity. But anyway, everything I've read thus far is, is worth reading. And the name of this book you might want to go get it just from the title. The gospel comes with a house key. It's like radical hospitality here. So we need this. Um, personally, our church could use some of this. Um, in fact, I'm toying with a hospitality series after 2 Corinthians. But anyway, listen to this story about Hank, okay? So she's having her morning devotions. Her phone is on silent in the other room. She's praying for Hank, her neighbor across the street, praying for his salvation. All the while, her phone is just blowing up with text messages from the neighbors, but she doesn't know because it's on silent, okay? It's early in the morning. Our house and Hank's house share a dead end that stops where two acres of woods open up. When Hank's moving van first backed down his driveway in 2014, he was a self-described recluse. He worked in his yard digging ditches, arbitrary and perfectly round holes that delighted my children because of their cookie-cutter symmetry and the very cool black snakes Hank unearthed and shared with them. He played loud music. He occasionally received cell phone calls that got him seething mad and shouting obscenities. He owned a 100-pound pit bull named Tank who ran the street without collar or tags. Okay, so, you know, Walid and Haytham, you might be like, ah, that's never going to happen. Your neighbor's probably not this weird. So if she's loving him, like, we all need this. This is what I'm saying. We've got some weird neighbors, right? Maybe we are the weird neighbors, but we've got some weird neighbors and... We need to learn to love um, with Christ-like love, so this is a helpful example. Lots of lessons here. So each neighbor can recall how we all saw our life flash before our eyes the first time we met Tank, bounding toward us at full throttle. Hank didn't cut his grass for three months, and by the time the city fined him for creating a meadow, <laughs> no regular mower could tackle the cleanup. Truth be told, Hank was not the neighbor we had prayerfully asked for when Eddie sold the house and moved her family to Wisconsin. But we trusted that Hank was the neighbor God had planned for us. Good neighboring is at the heart of the gospel we know. So when Hank moved in, we shared with him our contact information, introduced him to our dogs and kids, and waited for him to reciprocate. Instead, he dismantled his front doorbell so that no one else could disturb him. We prayed for Hank. And then one day, Tank ran away and did not come home. One night turned into two, two nights turned into a week. In the crisis of a lost dog, one who was also the closest companion of a lonely man, our bond was forged. We offered our help, and Hank received our open hand. We posted Tank's information on neighborhood listservs and enlisted other neighbors to come to Hank's aid. My 10-year-old daughter cried herself to sleep each night as she prayed for Tank's return, and she told Mr. Hank about her prayers and God's faithfulness. When Tank was finally found safe and sound, we became friends. We started to walk our dogs together. Soon we were eating meals together, spending holidays at our table, and sharing life. We learned that Hank lived alone, had severe clinical depression, PTSD, ADHD, and social anxiety. Hank loved the woods as much as the children and I do. 
As winter opened in the spring, he kept tally of our nesting red-shouldered hawks, our calling American toads, our migrating and returning robins, blue jays, woodpeckers, towhees, and ambling box turtles. Hank helped us chop down our dead trees and stack our wood. In his garage, he always had the knick-knack for... The knick-knack one might need, a small flashlight to attach to a reflector. Okay. Hank was uneven. His depression made him so. Sometimes he stayed secluded in his home for weeks on end. We'd text and offer to help, but to no avail. The only sign of life was that his garbage can would appear at the curb on the appointed night. As neighbors were texting my turned-off phone about danger at Tank's house, I'm sorry, Hank's house. Tank is the dog. Hank. Okay. I was sitting at my desk praying for Hank. I was praying for Hank's salvation. And then I noticed it, burly men ducking around the back of my house wearing orange shirts marked DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency. Serene darkness exploded with the unnatural intrusion of police lights. Yellow tape appeared everywhere, crime scene. I left my Bible open to Psalm 42 and ran to wake Kent and the children. I grabbed my phone and turned it on. The text messages bounced into life. What's going on at Hank's house? I hear there's a meth lab across the street from you. What does the conservative, Bible-believing family who lives across the street do in a crisis of this magnitude? How ought we to think about this? How ought we to live? We could barrack ourselves in the house, remind ourselves and our children that evil company perverts, 1 Corinthians 15, and like the good Pharisees that we are always poised to become, thank God that we are not like evil meth addicts. We could surround our home in our own version of a yellow crime scene tape, giving the, messages, giving the message that we are better than this, that we make good choices, that we would never fall into this mess. We could surround ourselves with fear. What if the meth lab explodes and takes out my daughter's bedroom, the room closest to the lab? We could berate ourselves with criticism. How could we have allowed this meth addict into our hearts and our home? But that, of course, is not what Jesus calls us to do. As neighbors filed into our front yard, which had become front row seats for an unfolding drama of epic magnitude, I scrambled eggs, put on a big, cut, big pot of coffee, set out Bibles, and invited them in. Who else but Bible-believing Christians can make redemptive sense of tragedy? Who can see hope in the promises of God when the real lived circumstances look dire? Who else knows that the sin that will, that will undo me is my own, not my neighbor's, no matter how big my neighbor's sin may appear? And where else but a Christian home should neighbors go in go in times of unprecedented crisis? Where else is it safe to be vulnerable, scared, lost, hopeless? How else could we teach our children how to apply faith to the facts of life, a process that cancels out neither reality as it begs Jesus for hope, help, redemptive purpose, and saving grace? If we were to close the shades and numb ourselves through media intake or go into remote monologues about how we always knew he was bad... or how we always make good choices, what legacy would that leave to our children? Here is the thing about soothing yourself with self-delusion. No one buys it but you. I had other things on my list of things to do that day, but none more important than what I was doing, gathering in distraught neighbors, praying for my friend Hank. So there's no happy ending to that story, at least not yet. But that's the kind of miracle love that we're called to on the Calvary Road. So do you see why there's prayers like this in the Bible? I pray that your love may abound. I don't know about you, but I need God to answer prayers like that because I feel how limited my love would be without supernatural resources. I pray that your love may abound more and more so that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness or 
in Ephesians 3. According to the riches of his glory, may he grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the only way we're going to be able to love like this. Love that bears burdens, love that seeks the other's good, love that gladly spends itself. Fourthly, love that explains itself. Look at verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. Does that throw you off at all? Like, wait a second, isn't... (laughs) Paul speaking out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, I thought this whole letter was a defense of his apostleship. Well, David Garland explains it well. He says, Paul's not being disingenuous with this question. He wants to make it clear to the Corinthians that he is not the prisoner at the bar having to submit to an embarrassing cross-examination. He has committed no offense and need not exonerate himself. Besides that, they are not his judges. It is God, not they, he must please. He is therefore speaking before God, not them. Paul is not defending himself. He is prosecuting his opponents and the Corinthians. So in a sense, Paul is not defending himself. The Corinthians are not his judges, right? He's actually prosecuting them in this letter. Not in order to back them into a corner and say, told you so, or because he wants to win. The point is, if if they don't embrace his case, they condemn themselves. So it's actually they who are on trial, not Paul. He's explaining out of love. It's kind of like when a teenager, maybe you might remember this if you were a teenager not too long ago, maybe if you have a teenager or you've seen this kind of thing happen, a situation where a teenager is in the wrong and they are actually trying to prosecute their parents. But in the process, they are indicting themselves, whether they see it or not. You know what I'm talking about? The parent, if the goal is not to just win, the parent has to wrestle with the tension of whether or not to answer the fool according to their folly. Because sometimes it just isn't going to do any good. It's only going to make things worse. But there is a desire to explain. Again, not to win, put the finger in the chest and back to the corner, but rather to win the heart of that precious teen that they love. You know what I'm saying? Tracking with that? Okay. So this is the challenge of love. Explaining without... Defending yourself and having self-serving motivation, that's not Paul's deal here. But this kind of stuff happens. It can happen pretty regularly in interpersonal conflict. In your family, it can happen. In the church, it can happen. Outside the church, it can happen. You can be misunderstood and get all cranky and withdraw and lick your wounds because somebody says something to you. How many times does that happen? Well, what if we as Christians... Like, boy, I've been cranky with the Lord... I've, like, put him in the, the dock as if I could be the prosecuting attorney and he doesn't know what he's doing. And how has he dealt with me? 
so patiently, so kindly. Lord, give me grace. Give me, give me love, your love, so that I don't just get cranky, withdraw, lick my wounds, whatever, criticize the person, but I want to take the time and, and expend the energy to explain because maybe by your grace the issues will melt away and I'll be an agent of your peace and I'll extend the ministry of reconciliation like chapter 5 of this book. All from love. So love bears burdens. It seeks the well-being, seeks well-being of the beloved. It spends itself sacrificially and it works to explain and not allow misunderstanding or ignorance to get in the way of love. It also builds up. This one's pretty quick. Verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul's been beating this drum for a while. Remember where 1 Corinthians placed between chapters 12 and 14? What's the point of the spiritual gifts? Build up the body so that the church is healthy and strong. But they're using their gifts for selfish, selfish reasons, and there's all kinds of conflict. So he drops chapter 13, the love chapter, in between 12 and 14 as the grease so that the exercise of the gifts happens for good, smoothly, for the building up of the body rather than fireworks and, and friction. The purpose of the gifts is to build up the body. Corinthians lacked love. That's why there were so many problems <laughs> And here Paul is loving them sacrificially, perseveringly, in order to build them up. Again, a lesson for us. What is our motivation? What's our goal? What's our purpose in these relationships God has given us? And finally, love fears. Verses 20 to 21. Might be a little, might sound weird at first, but have you ever heard the saying, the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference? Have you ever heard that? Look at verse 20. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I, as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. In other words, you'll still be against me, critical of me. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. I fear, look down at the end, that many of those who sinned earlier have not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. So, this is like a real-time example of Paul's anxiety for all the churches. Remember that back at the end of chapter 11? Apart from all these other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So what father isn't afraid of and humbled by his child's rebellion? Right? He longs for them to repent and follow Jesus. He fears they won't. He fears the consequences. Does that mean he's weak? In a sense, yes, of course, and he's happy to admit it. <laughs> it's because he loves them. So there's all kinds of anxiety and fear that's the result of seeking first the wrong things, but when we follow Jesus, our well-being is bound up in the well-being of those that we love, and it kills us when people we love are on a destructive path. And we have no greater joy when our children are walking in the truth, right? 